All right. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, our next company up is uh, certainly one of my favorite names in the property casualty sector and one that I believe – you know, really defines the meaning of being a highly specialized niche underwriter. Uh, that company is ProAssurance. Uh, the company is one of the largest medical malpractice writers in the company and the last remaining publicly traded med mal writer uh, after a flurry of M&A deals over the last couple of years. With us today to talk about the company are Chairman CEO Stan Starnes, CFO Ned Rand, and the head of IR Frank O'Neill. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for your interest. Thank you for being here this afternoon. For those of you not familiar with our company, I'll give a brief bit of background as well as passing along uh, information that will be of interest to our long-term investors, and we'll save plenty of time during the program for questions. ProAssurance is a writer of professional liability insurance, primarily MPL or medical professional liability insurance. When the transaction involving the Florida company closes in the next few months, we'll be the only pure play publicly company, publicly traded company left in the United States that specializes in medical professional liability. We enjoy a market capitalization of about $2.1 billion, assets approaching $5 billion, and shareholder equity of $2 billion. Uh, yesterday, we announced for the first time in our history uh, the payment of a cash dividend. Uh, the annualized dividend yield at the rate set yesterday by our board is 1.4%. We enjoy an A rating from AM Best and an A rating from Fitch. We think the dividend announcement yesterday, and I'll talk more a bit, uh, in a bit about capital management, but that will be a part of our capital management program. Uh, medical professional liability insurance is different than most of the other insurance that's written by the P&C industry. Uh, the thing that distinguishes it is the long tail nature of the business and the historical volatility of the business. If you look back to the 1970s, no line of business has been as volatile as medical professional liability. Premiums uh, have enabled us and the price increases that we've enjoyed since about 2000 have enabled us to uh, enjoy a period of prolonged benign profitability. Uh, we have no CAD exposure. We have significant policyholder retention, as I'll speak uh, to in a minute. Uh, but we are very committed to our balance sheet and to the long-term profitability of our business. We've been public for 20 years. This coming Sunday will be the 20th anniversary, and in that time, our investors have been remarkably rewarded uh, for their allegiance to the organization. We've grown book value per share every year. We remain very focused on book value as we think it is the best intrinsic uh, indicator of the value of the enterprise. The cumulative growth in book value since we went public is over 1,600%, a compound annual growth rate of 16%. We are very, very proud of the ramp up in book value over the last 20 years, and as I say, we remain very focused on that. Uh, our share price has shown a similar trajectory. If you had invested with us 20 years ago, your stock today would be worth almost 14 times your initial investment, a cumulative return of 1,300%. Uh, we have at least five major shareholders who have remained shareholders from the very beginning following our demutualization until today, and we're very proud of the long record we have with those shareholders. 
The medical professional liability area is a very fragmented market in the United States. As I mentioned, we're the largest pure play, will soon be the only pure play, with the fourth largest writer overall. The top 20 writers have just 65% of the market. There are over 100 writers with some share of the market. We have grown to become the fourth largest overall through both a very successful long-term merger and acquisition strategy as well as through organic growth. Uh, the world, the history of MPL is volatile, as I've said, and the future is uncertain. And the uncertainty lies in the coming changes in the health care system in the United States, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Many of the companies operating in our space operate in one or two states. Many of them are mutual companies. The footprint of ProAssurance covers the United States. We write across a broad geographic part of the country. Our legacy medical professional liability business generally is in the southeast and down the middle swath of the country, though we do go as far west as Nevada. Our podiatric business and our ENS business takes us into the other states of the United States. The national scope of ProAssurance is one of the things that differentiates us from others in this state. The important thing about that map in front of you is it contains 50 states, and if you're in this business, you're in 50 different businesses if you're in business in every state, because this is a very state-concentrated business, and it's a different business in Alabama than it is in Florida. Those two states are contiguous, but they might as well be on different planets in terms of the differences in the medical professional liability business in each of those states. So it's very important that one understands the local nature of the business in which you are engaged if you are engaged in this business. We defend providers along the entire spectrum of the healthcare system, from home healthcare nurses to hospitals to all practicing physicians, uh, all subspecialties, all different types of health care providers. Our distribution system uh, is spread between about 65% of our business being through agents and about 35% of our business being written on a direct basis. And through 2011, we have about 71,000 policyholders spread around the United States. Uh, to give you a bit of an operational overview and maybe to take a little bit of a football look at it, Alabama is known for its college football. We pay much more attention to college football in Alabama than we do to professional football. And to have a winning college football program, it's all about blocking and tackling. Uh, there's nothing uh, super secret about it. The team that blocks and tackles the best wins football games. Uh, and I want to talk about our business here today in terms of the basics of it, the blocking and tackling. And it starts off is an underwriting business. Uh, and particularly in the investment climate we're in today, the underwriting aspect of our business remains very, very important. It is the most basic part of our business. If you look at the chart there, you see the calendar year combined ratio of ProAssurance uh, and one that we've consistently outperformed the industry. If you go back to 1991 when we demutualized and you bring that up to date, you'll see that ProAssurance's average combined ratio is 93.8%. The industry's combined average over that same period of time is 107.4%, roughly a 14-point uh, difference. Uh, 
as you know, in the NPL line, as every other line of property and casualty coverage, you speak in terms of frequency and severity, and that determines your loss cost. Frequency has been very volatile over the years, though in recent years it has remained stable. Severity, likewise, has been very volatile over the years, though in recent years it's been manageable at an increase of about 4% a year. We retain about 90% of our business that's up for renewal, and we measure that in terms of expiring premium and how much of that premium uh, is renewed. And it's a pure calculation in the sense that we don't exclude from the calculation uh, anybody. If it's an expiring dollar premium, it's considered in the calculation. So even if the physician dies or the physician becomes disabled or he moves away or he takes a different job, that's counted in our retention number. And we remain at around 90%, and we're very proud of that. Rates on renewing business is down less than about 14% from the highs in peak pricing in 2006. Uh, we think at some point the claims loss trends will turn. Why do we think that? They always have. And things are never just the same, but they don't change that radically. So we expect the loss trend severity to pick up in the years to come, and we expect severity will continue to increase. The volatility of our line of business convinces us of the need to be conservative with respect to reserving, because in this long-tail business, a physician, a physician gives us a dollar of premium today, and we give him a piece of paper. And that piece of paper won't be needed by him to pay a judgment or to provide a defense until several years goes by. So it's very important that we have a balance sheet that will enable us to keep the promise that we make that physician today. It's one of the two things we offer him, and it's one of the two things that keep us from becoming a commodity. The strength of the balance sheet, that is, the ability to make that piece of paper meaningful in the future. And the second thing is the defense of that position when he is sued or when a claim is made against him. Those are the things that distinguish us from others. The way we protect him are through the reserves, and we are very conservative in our reserve development and the way we calculate our reserves because the landscape of MPL is littered with the corpses of companies that weren't particularly conservative in their reserving. The successful claims defense is one of the things that I mentioned that sets us apart from others, and here you have industry figures compared to pro-assurance figures. And you'll see that this is one of the primary ingredients that distinguishes us from our competitors. If you look, you'll see that pro-assurance has provided 82% favorable outcomes with respect to claims filed against our insurers. Compare that to an industry average of 73% for favorable outcomes. This is a five-year study of industry data from 2005 through 2009. We produced defendants' verdicts in 15% of those cases. The industry produces defendants' verdicts in only 5% of the cases. That's the difference. Most of the cases, say roughly 65 to 75% of the cases, go away on their own. The key is what happens in the other cases. And ProAssurance, more than any other competitor, offers the physician the opportunity for vindication. And that becomes increasingly important as claims data is made public. And that's the case now in roughly 26% of the case. Ohio provides a great laboratory in which to take a little closer look 
at the claims experience because Ohio is one of the states that segregates by line what the claims experience is. If you look at the Ohio data, you'll see that ProAssurance closes fewer claims with indemnity payments than the rest of the industry. We close only 7% of our cases with indemnity pay payments. 93% are closed with no indemnity payments, whereas the industry pays over three times that much in indemnity payments, closing 25% of their cases with indemnity payments and only 75% with no indemnity payments. As you'll see from the chart on the upper right, we take more claims, defend more claims in court than any other company. We close with trial 13% of our claims, over three times more than the rest of the industry. Everybody in this business will tell you they're for strong claims defense, but the statistics show that we bring meaning to that that others do not. And the payoff is found in the average indemnity payments. ProAssurance in Ohio averages $27,000 for per indemnity payment. All others average over $70,000 per indemnity payment. And we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in defense costs to produce those results, but it still overall results in a much, much more favorable combined ratio. I mentioned a moment ago that one of the reasons this is important to physicians is because increasingly around the country, the disposition of claims is a matter of public record. You know, when an insurance company takes a claim from a physician, uh, we'll open a file, and that file will remain open until we settle it or until it's resolved in favor of the defendant physician. And then the insurance company gets to close its file. The physician never gets to close that file. That file will be open the rest of her professional life. Every time she fills out a hospital staff privileges application, she'll have to disclose it. Why she was sued, what was the result of it. Every time she fills out an application for medical professional liability coverage, she'll have to disclose it. Every time she applies for membership in specialty organizations, she'll have to disclose it. And in 26 states around the country, the disposition today is made public and is accessible to the public. So the physician, unlike many other property casualty relationships, the physician, the insured, has a real stake, an ongoing stake, indeed a lifelong stake, in the outcomes of these claims. So while it may be expedient for the insurance company to close its file, oftentimes settling the case for the physician. It's never expedient for the physician to settle a case that is not a case of liability, and that will have to wear with that physician for the rest of her lives. Healthcare reform in this country uh, has created lots of uncertainty, and none of us know what the healthcare system will look like five years ago, except we know that it will look very different than it does today. If for no other reason, we all have to acknowledge that we can't sustain the healthcare system that we can today. Frequency of claims, that is the number of claims brought against physicians, is measured in terms, in my view, of patient frustration and unexpected outcomes. That's what sends patients to a lawyer's office. And I don't think anybody thinks that the health care system that's coming is going to diminish 
patient frustration or eliminate unexpected outcomes, both of the nature of healthcare. That means there's going to be more customer or patient dissatisfaction and certainly the potential for more litigation. The other thing that's going on in the healthcare system is more and more physicians are migrating into hospitals. Over 50% of the physicians in the country today are employed by a hospital or a hospital-affiliated organization. That's a huge change than what has historically been the case. Uh, and as those, as those physicians migrate into hospitals, it creates new challenges and it creates new opportunities uh, for everyone that's in the MPL line of business. We have announced at ProAssurance an arrangement and program we have with Ascension, which is the largest Catholic health care provider in the country, the largest nonprofit provider of any type in the country, whereby physicians that are on the Ascension staffs around the country will have the opportunity to participate in the Certitude Program, which while these are not necessarily employed physicians of Ascension, they'll be insured on ProAssurance paper pursuant to the Certitude Program, and we think it's programs like this that are for the future of the MPL business. And to take advantage of this future, you have to have sufficient geographic breadth and sufficient balance sheet size to enable you to take advantage of all that's likely to come as healthcare changes in the U.S. An issue for the smaller carriers, and every carrier is now at a fork in the road they have, that's in our business. They have to decide, are we going to participate in this new world, or are we going to cut back as our universe of potential insureds shrinks, are we going to cut back the size of our business? Everybody has to make that decision that's in the MPL space, and the decision will face increasing acuity as all of these changes take place. We get asked all the time, what about tort reform? What about federal tort reform? Uh, it, it has not passed at the federal level. In our view, it is not likely to pass uh, based on the current political environment. It could not pass in the earlier part of the first decade of this century when the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate and the White House, so it's certainly not likely to pass uh, now in our view. It will remain a state-by-state -state venture with different outcomes in different states, but the book on tort reform is never closed. Even in those states where a state Supreme Court validates the legislation, the plaintiff's bar is free to come back and challenge it in the future, and they do, over and over and over again. So it, it is never closed in terms of being able to say this tort reform is here to stay. And different states have done different things in tort reform. In recent months, Illinois has declared their tort reform statute unconstitutional for the second time. Uh, Georgia has uh, invalidated portions of its tort reform. Uh, we're waiting on Florida for the decision there, but it remains, the important thing is that it remains a state-by-state uh, -state battle. Let me mention uh, just a couple of words about the uh, investment portfolio of the company. First of all, if you go to our website, our entire portfolio is on the website down to the QCIP level, and you can model it yourself and see exactly what's in it, and we update it every quarter. It's an effort on our part to be as transparent as possible. The, you, you will never see the words pro-assurance written without seeing the words treated fairly nearby, and that's part of the relationship with our shareholders that we think is part of treated fairly, and that is that we have a very transparent investment portfolio. 
As you'll see, it's largely a fixed income portfolio, 91% uh, is in that. And during the second quarter, we added short uh, asset-backed securities, and we added governments to mitigate concerns over the spread widening. Uh, the average duration is 4.1 years. The average tax equivalent year, yield is 4.7%. 97% of it is investment grade, and the weighted average is AA minus. It's part of that promise that we say we talked about earlier in terms of our insureds and their ability to rely on us to be around several years after they got that piece of paper that we fulfill our part of the promise and our part of the bargain. Uh, we remain committed to capital management. As I said yesterday, we announced a dividend uh, at an annualized rate of a dollar a share. This capital management program complements our stock repurchase program. Uh, we've spent $315 million to repurchase 6 million shares since 2005. Uh, we try to purchase these shares in such a way as that it builds book value. We think it's a, the share repurchase will continue to be an important part of our capital management structure, and our dividend program will enhance that. The, <coughs> pardon me, our long-term ROE habit our target is 12 to 14 percent. The chart there shows the different aspects of it and the different components of the return on equity. As I mentioned earlier, we're very proud of our 20-year history in producing significant returns for our shareholders on a consistent basis. Finally, from a, stand from a shareholder standpoint, we remain very focused on maintaining profitability on sustaining book value growth, on producing sustainable shareholder value, and focusing on the long term. We rarely meet with investors, be it one or two or a room full, where we don't repeat that we are not a quarter-to-quarter -quarter business. Everything we do is focused on long-term returns. We're not focused on the next quarter. We make, don't make decisions on that basis. And if people are quarterly investors, they probably would be happier somewhere other than pro-assurance because that's not the way we run the business. We don't think that's the appropriate thing to do for our shareholders. We don't think it's the appropriate thing to do for our insurers. Uh, we are especially business, as I mentioned at the outset. We remain very passionate about what we do, and that is providing certainty in a very uncertain healthcare environment to protecting our physicians when they deserve to be protected and not taking some contrary action just because it might be more financially expedient for the company. Uh, we are committed to what we do and not to becoming a commodity, and we think that's what gives us a special place uh, in this business. And I'll be pleased to take what questions you have, and Ned, our CFO, is here, and he can answer the questions that you may have on the financial end as well. Uh, Stan, uh, two questions. Uh, first, obviously, as, as you said, there's always discussion around tort reform at, at a state level. Uh, it seems in the last couple of weeks there's been more talk, uh, as you touched on, in Florida. Is the tort reform there being challenged? Is there anything different this go-around as opposed to what seems to be on an annual basis for every state these days? <clears throat> the case that's talked about is a case that actually arose in the federal system. It went to the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. And in that case, there were challenges to the constitutionality of the Florida 
tort reform. Part of it was challenged on the federal basis in the 11th Circuit, as has every other court, to my knowledge, that has considered it, said there was nothing about the Florida tort reform legislation uh, that ran afoul of the United States Constitution, either equal protection or due process. And, and that's typical of the state tort reform. They've challenged on both the federal and the state level, and the, the federal challenges have never been successful. But the 11th Circuit said, while we can rule on the federal challenge, the question of whether it violates the Florida State Constitution is a question for the Florida Supreme Court. So under a federal appellate procedural rule that permits it, the 11th Circuit certified to the Supreme Court of Florida the question of, of whether the provisions were violative of the Florida State Constitution. There's a briefing schedule that's gone on there, and I assume that the Florida Supreme Court will address the question. They don't have to under the certification provisions, but I assume they will address the question and we'll know whether Florida regards its state tort reform as constitutional or, or unconstitutional. Um, and then second question, uh, obviously ProAssurance uh, has been active as well as you know other players in, in the uh, medical professional liability business over the years with an M&A uh, as sort of a growth driver. Um, love to hear your thoughts on kind of where that stands today and if it's changed uh, you know in recent quarters, as well as there's been talk from larger international players, uh, you know, primarily large reinsurers, uh, looking to expand into the U.S. at a sizable uh, rate over the next several years and looking for specialty businesses such as yourself. Uh, are you hearing the same things? Well, you know, the pro-assurance demutualized in 1991 and not long after that began a fairly steady program of, of mergers and acquisitions, and today that number of different transactions totals somewhere around 20. Uh, and those opportunities are very episodic. You can't predict them. Uh, you can't force them. You just have to be available. And they typically fall into one of two big buckets, either the bucket of pain, that is there's a company that's undergoing some sort of pain for some reason, and they need to find a transaction partner or they fall under the bucket of uncertainty, either uncertainty as to their capital position, uncertainty as to the liquidity position, or uncertainty as to the environment in which they're transacting business. And that can also lead to a merger and acquisition. The industry today is basically healthy. There will undoubtedly be further opportunities for mergers and acquisitions, especially as the healthcare environment itself becomes more complicated and it takes greater scope and size to be an effective participant in that environment. So while you can't predict when or how they will happen, I think there will continue to be significant uh, transactions over the coming years. I also think that there will be more opportunity than, than there's been in a long time for organic growth, simply because of the great changes that are coming in the healthcare system. You've seen this migra migration of physicians uh, into the hospital employment bucket, and they typically are put into the hospital captive. And the question's going to be is whether the hospital captive really will want to keep them there. The physicians are high touch in terms of their claims and otherwise, and a lot of these hospital captives are not established in a way that can enable them to do that. So I think there'll be lots of opportunities for us in that arena as well. In terms of international companies coming into the United States and 
having some interest in this space. Uh, if they do, it'll be the first time. Uh, over the last 30 years, the, you know, the, the commercial insurance world has left this space. They hadn't come back to this space in terms of the insuring the individual physician. So that, I think, would surprise me if that happened. Uh, and just to follow up in terms of uh, going back to the hospital migration, uh, do you, you know that, that uh, growth there has uh, been accelerating? Do you expect over the next, say, three to five years for that to continue to accelerate, or will, will it start to flatten out? Will it get to 100 percent, or does it? No, it won't get to 100 percent. There will always be room and an attractiveness for the entrepreneurial physician to be in private practice. I think what you'll see is that that migration will continue. Whether it gets to 60% or 70%, I don't know. But the, the demographics favor that. People getting out of medical school today tend to want certainty in their schedules. Uh, the, the, bureaucrati the bureaucratization of medicine is accelerating. That lends itself to physicians wanting the hospitals to handle it, things like electronic med medical records. And the reimbursement schedules favor that migration. So I think it will continue. We haven't seen the last of it. Uh, but there are plenty of hospital organizations in the country, sizable ones, that don't want to employ the physicians. But even those will have closer relationships with the physicians. This is something you're, you've brought up before, but with the baby boomer population and people getting older, I guess you just have more clients going through there, which could be more issues, I'm assuming. so. How do you, have you seen any effect from that starting? And if so, how do you deal with it going forward? How do you tell the doctor what you're dealing with more people so we have to charge you more? Or how does that get priced into the equation? You know, ultimately the pricing depends on the loss cost, and the loss cost will reflect itself in severity or frequency. Uh, when the health care plan is fully implemented, 30 million people will have access to insured care that don't have it today. Now, how that will manifest itself, there's a great deal of debate about. Will people that all their lives have gone to the emergency room for health care all of a sudden go to a doctor? And if they do, where's the doctor going to come from? Because there are not enough of them now. So that creates issues. Uh, <clears throat> to answer your question, if loss costs go up, then the premiums, the pricing will have to go up because it makes no sense to sell this product if you're not getting an adequate price for it. The It'll be interesting to see. You know, as I said earlier, my own view of the world is is people go to lawyers because they're either frustrated with their health care, they don't think they were treated right, or they had an, un, uh, an outcome they didn't expect, an unanticipated outcome. Therefore, somebody must have done something wrong. And you, we could talk about that for hours. But those are the two things that send people to a lawyer, and that's the first step in the system. Now, if that reflects itself in greater frequency, then that will increase loss costs. That will make premiums go up. You can't put any specificity on all that, but you can say this. There is nothing about the health care system that's coming that's going to drive down frequency. There's nothing about the health care system that's coming that's going to reduce unexpected outcomes. So that's a way of saying what I believe to be true, and that is there's going to be lots of demand for our product, probably more demand for it than there's ever been. 
and probably more demand for it in a more complicated setting than there's ever been, which I think will present terrific opportunities for us going forward. Well, we're not going to sell it if we can't get an adequate price for it. And uh, the key is to be around long enough uh, so that the people that don't price it adequately take themselves out of the market. But we, we, we are, you know, it goes back to what I said about not being a quarter-to-quarter -quarter business. We're not a top-line business either. I mean, you can have all the top line you want in our business, how much you want, and it'll be a disaster for you in terms of the bottom line. We're, we're a bottom line business, not a top line business. And in soft markets, we're willing to see the top line shrink, and we've seen it shrink over the last few years because we just are quite committed to underwriting and adequacy of pricing. And you know, we owe that to our shareholders, and we owe it to our policyholders because of the long tail nature of the business. Curious if you could uh, walk through an example of a state that went through tort reform and the impact on the average policy price for a doctor, um, and maybe, maybe in a round trip like Illinois. So. Yeah, you know, it. <clears throat> in terms of pro-assurance, we don't price for tort reform until we know it, it's reflected in the data and it's been upheld by the highest court in the state. So we have to see the data. We have to see that the loss costs are coming down and that the tort reform will be there. Uh, great example of what's happened with tort reform, and we can get you some specific numbers, though I don't know them offhand. Texas passed constitutional tort reform. It's the strongest tort reform in the country in the sense that it's very hard for the trial bar to attack it because it is embedded within the Texas state constitution. So you can't say it violates some provision of the Constitution. It is the Constitution. So it was subject to a federal constitutional attack, which it withstood. Uh, and it has resulted in premium prices coming down for physicians all over the state, all specialty lines, and it has created a very favorable environment. And the number of licenses in Texas has gone up. And you can trace that back to the tort reform. I mean, it's had a very real very determinable impact in Texas. And the most important thing about tort reform, and we lose sight of this sometimes, is not that it reduces your loss cost, because it doesn't necessarily have to reduce the loss cost. It will make them more predictable. But the most important thing about tort reform, and the reason to have it, is to assure the public access to care. There are people in Alabama and every other state in the country who can't have their children delivered close to home because there's no specialist there to deliver it. And the reason the specialist is not there and the patient doesn't have access to care is because the physician doesn't have confidence that the system will treat them fairly. The reason to have tort reform is so that the public will have access to medical care and take it out of the lottery system that exists in far too many states. You know, I think that there was an announcement that came out this week regarding one of the other companies that does business in Texas, and I think in that announcement they attributed something north of 30% to the tort reform. Now, don't hold me to that number, but it was a significant number. It was a big number. It was a big number. 
And the other thing, of course, is, you know, uh, just like you don't know how many cases of measles the vaccine prevents, you don't know necessarily all the lawsuits the tort reform dissuaded somebody from filing. So it's a hard number to get at. Yes, sir. It's definitely a challenge right now. Um, you know, we see just core investment income going down quarter over quarter as reinvestment rates um, decline. And, and probably over the last two years, we're reinvesting at 200 basis points lower than what's coming out of the portfolio. Um, as Stan mentioned, the, the core of our portfolio, 91% of the portfolio, is fixed income portfolio. Um, where we're making adjustments is, is really in that other that other nine percent. Really, the other five percent, about half of that other nine percent, is just cash and, and short-term investments. Um, so where we're seeking kind of additional yield is on the margins. And what we have been doing as of late, um, starting in late 2008 into 2009 and um, and forward, is is investing in federal tax credits. Um, when, when you had Freddie and Fannie kind of implode and, and the life insurer's um, profitability declined, the demand for federal tax credits dried up, and as a result, you're able to, you were able to obtain mid to high teen returns on federal tax credits. When you look at our financial results, it, 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 it skews things a little bit because when you purchase a federal tax credit, it actually results in a negative investment income number um, but then a sizable tax credit that flows through the tax benefit, the tax benefit that flows through the, the tax line. Um, so it's kind of it's a little difficult to see when you actually look at our financial statements. But it is one place we're finding yield. Um, I think like like a lot of other companies, we're looking at uh, dividend yielding stocks as well as, as a place to find yield. And if you look at our portfolio, uh, the second quarter you'll see an increase, not a, not a large increase, but a modest increase in, in our equity allocation as well. We have time for one more question. What we're not doing is chasing uh, duration, a yield with your extending duration. Jim, uh, I guess uh, lucky to get the last question here. Uh, are there any lines of business that are that could potentially, or you know, in theory, uh, be complementary uh, to your expertise in uh, medical professional liability? Whether the knowledge of uh, doctors, you know, would translate well, or, or vice versa, into something like uh, some sort of medical uh, product liability, or some other lines that, that may fit down the road. You know, we 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 look at that. Um, we write a, about a twenty million dollar book of business for lawyers today. We'll probably uh, look at that. Uh, our attitude about that is that we think we ought to look at different things. It'll have to be compelling, and we we have to. Work we think we have a special place in the niche we are in today because we understand it and we are effective operators in that area. Uh, to move into something else, we would have to be very comfortable that we would be equally effective in that area. We don't want to become all things to all people. We want to do what we do in a very profitable and in a very efficient and in a very effective manner. Thank you all for coming.